Hello and welcome to Citizen Kane Minute, the show that examines the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me to discuss minutes 70 to 75 of Citizen Kane is my pal, Ted Killington. Hi, Ted. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing the show. Uh, we did a MASH cast together. I guess, was that earlier this year? I can't, I have no sense uh, of time anymore. Well, I remember it was uh, during a blizzard. So yeah, it was earlier this year. Maybe it was earlier this year. So yeah, we're, this time we're here to talk about Citizen Kane. As I said, we're, we're going to be discussing minutes 70 to 75. They're going to start with Gettys and Emily leaving Susan's apartment. And they're going to end with Kane and Jed drinking together. But before we get to the minutes, I got to ask you the standard question, Ted. When did you first see Citizen Kane? Well, you will be not at all surprised to hear that I was in college. There we go, college. Damn it. Damn it, I should have gone to college. Um, well, you did, uh, for you, was it the Keyword School? <laughs> yes. Was that, when, was that when you first saw it? It was before, a little before that, actually. Oh, okay. Well, uh, for what it's worth, I, I went in the Air Force straight out of uh, high school, and I didn't start college until I was 21, so a couple years older than most of the college students. Yeah, whatever that's worth. It was just uh, at the time I had uh, uh, a keen interest in film. And of course, I'd heard about how it was the greatest film of all time. So me and a friend, uh, we rented it. Uh, of course, that was back in the VHS days. Mm. Um, so we, we uh, got that. And I, I was pleasantly surprised. You know, I so often, um, certainly back in the 80s, a lot of the films that were, were uh considered to be the, the greatest of the year or uh, the one that the critics raved about seemed like there were these really dry merchant ivory type pictures. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of what I was expecting with Citizen Kane. So I was very pleasantly surprised at how uh, humorous it was and, and quick paced. You know, it was mm-hmm. not at all like a merchant <laughs> ivory film. <laughs> not quite. What was it that seemed uh, so resonant to you? Was it the, the, how the story was told, just the story itself, everything? I mean, or was it just the surprise, like you said, of it not being this sort of, sort of boring, you know, drawn out thing? Right. Um, that was part of it. But I also thought it was easily um, uh, emotionally accessible. You know, a lot of times, um, uh, some of the the subtleties and uh, metaphors um, uh, can be too subtle uh, uh, for my plebeian tastes, <laughs> but um, uh, I thought it, it, it was a, a delicate touch. Uh, you know, I could tell what he was trying to say, but it without it didn't feel like it was being hammered. You know, certainly the the part about seeking your whole life for uh, for love and never finding it because he won't. Uh, it's got to be in your terms and no one else's. I've, I've had a few uh, house cats uh, like that. <laughs> That is the relationship we tend to have with cats. That's, that's for damn sure. When you yes. were in the service, were there people that were kind of movie fans? Were there? Did you ever get to know anybody on that level? I certainly watched a lot of movies with my friends, but uh, none really on a, uh, a critical uh, level. Uh, a friend from high school who uh, we had, and after I got out of the service and went back uh, home and um, he was still around at the time. And uh, he also had a critical eye for film. So, uh, we would um, have some uh, good discussions at the time. Gotcha. So in the uh, inter- intervening years, uh, have you gone back to watch this again at any sort of, with any sort of regularity? Well, uh, the second time I watched it was about a year after that, after the first time. And it was, uh, I was working in the college library and another uh, student who was working there um, we were talking about films and I said, well, Citizen Kane is considered to be the greatest film of all time. And, 
uh, their tastes were even more plebeian than mine and they, <laughs> they, they didn't buy it. So we watched it together. And of course, as soon as it comes on, like within the first 60 seconds, like, Oh, what's so great about it? What's so great about it? <laughs> wow. Well, okay. <laughs> Getting to one of the, the, your frequent questions, is it the greatest film of all time? Well, there's really no way to, to, to set any kind of, uh, metrics or scale that uh, you can adequately compare uh, things like Citizen Kane or Fantasia or Star Wars, you know, they're right. such, such diverse uh, 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 in- intense, the, the techniques, the intense, the um, what they were going for. Um, uh, sorry, not intense, the intentions. Yeah. Uh, such diverse inten- intentions. Um, yeah. There's, there's no real comparison. Uh, having said that, I will say that out of any of the, the films I've uh, seen throughout my life, because I've also listened to the, the commentaries um, uh, after college was about 10 years later uh, when I bought my first DVD player. And the very <laughs> first DVD I bought was Citizen Kane. Nice. And so I watched Citizen Kane and I watched um, the um, Roger Ebert uh, commentary track and the Peter Bogdanovich commentary track and uh, the uh, deleted brothel scene and the um, uh, the DVD I had uh, actually uh, came with another DVD, uh, the documentary, The Battle for Citizen Right, Kane. yep, yep. Uh, and then I hadn't watched it then, so it was probably about 15 years or so. I did watch it uh, once with my wife, probably about mm, five years or so ago. And uh, she thought, you're not going to make me watch this again, are you? And <laughs> uh, uh, well, I will be watching it again. If you want to be in the room with me at the time, that is your choice. Right. But right. I, I can't imagine I will never want to see this uh, again. And um, so I've seen it a total of four times before uh, uh, you had announced that you were going to be doing this and you were soliciting uh, uh, people to be on the show. Uh, basically, I, I think I answered an ad or the internet equivalent thereof. <laughs> Seeking and, friend to come on the podcast for commentary. Yes, yes. Um, and so um, I started uh, watching it again. I've probably seen it. You mentioned it that around the beginning of 2021, and now we're in August. So I've probably seen it about four times this year. Wow. Um, well, two times just the film itself. Um, plus, the again, I watched the uh, Roger Ebert commentary track, and again, the Peter Bogdanovich track, and again, I watched the uh, Battle for Citizen Kane documentary. So I, I've been quite immersed. In fact, uh, just last night, I read uh, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number 4. Um, the story was titled Citizen Wayne. <laughs> and it, the, the, uh, it, it wasn't a retelling of or like trying to fit Bruce Wayne in, in, into the Citizen Kane storyline. It was more just the, the technique. You know, we already had the interviewer uh, trying to get stories about and uh, details about an, Wayne's life uh, in flashback. So they used the, the framework, the storytelling framework in that story. But other than that, there weren't really any, uh, any parallels. I read that a long time ago. Uh, I don't really remember much from it. Do you remember who drew it? Uh, Joe, is it Staten or Staten? Oh, Joe Staten drew it? Oh, wow. I'll have to go back. I don't remember that. I like Joe Staten. I'll have to go back and read that again before I finish up the show because that's uh, I, I love his artwork. Oh, I was just going to say um, I wouldn't have remembered that if I hadn't read it last night. But right. So uh, 
what other movies, in your opinion, would you put on that list? If you can't, we can't, you know, boil it down to one, of course. But I mean, in your mind, like, what other films deserve that level of uh, of, of praise? Uh, certainly, you know, I've I liked a variety of films. Uh, um, my my top three, I think, are um, uh, Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, Alan has done some dramas. He's done some comedies, but to me, that was the best blend of the two genres. And of course, that's a very uh, tricky uh, style to pull off, uh, blending comedy and drama. And I thought he did it best there. Uh, another one of my uh, top three is uh, Strange Brew, uh, The <laughs> Adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie. And uh, I'll, I'll, if uh, uh Fire and Water Patreon fans want to contribute to uh, Ted's Strange Brew minute by minute. Uh, I'd love to have you on, Ross. <laughs> you know, they always show those two movies as, uh, as double features, uh, Crime Misdemeanors and Strange Brew. They're always pairing those two up. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and and the, the, the third uh, film on my purple bill would be um, The Dark Knight, the, night, the 2008 version with Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, directed by Christopher Nolan. Um, so, uh, three very different films. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in terms of how I would, even though th- those three are my favorites, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Citizen Kane is one that's, it's more accessible to kind of learning, uh, about a film. Maybe that just because I've heard, you know, the, all the commentaries and articles I've read about it, but, it's one of the the best films I've had for kind of learning about the, the uh, intense intentions of the filmmaker. Mm. Um, so I thought that was definitely uh, one of the things. And of course, certainly uh, while the uh, Roger Ebert commentary track had a lot of insights there, uh, since Peter Bogdanovich is a director, uh, I thought that one was a little, uh, had a little more insights to offer regarding a director's intentions. And he was friends with with Wells, of course. So he well, was coming at right. it at a different angle. Yeah, right, right. So he was recounting um, this stuff uh, secondhand, whereas for Roger Ebert, a lot of it may have been uh, thirdhand. But at least yeah. with, with Bogdanovich, it was secondhand. Ebert really did a great job on that, and and uh, it's it's that is one of my favorite commentaries to listen to because he's just highly entertaining. And I had wished that he had done more of them. There's he's only he only did like a handful of commentary tracks there's i have a casablanca uh dvd that he did the commentary for and there's a couple others but he didn't do as many as you would think considering he was such a renowned name but he hid the the one he does for for kane is really fun because you can tell he's just really enjoying watching it again and being able to just gab about it right right uh now i guess in terms of um you know the greatest film um i would i measure these things since you know greatness is subjective i measure it more on influence and certainly citizen kane is one of the most influential movies uh, of all time uh, worldwide you know not just uh, american cinema but worldwide um i mean in terms of influence it would certainly be right up there with birth of a nation uh, really because it it Definitely had a huge change on uh, on the film industry, so I would I would rank it up there. Certainly is uh, one of the, the certainly one of the ten most influential uh, films uh, worldwide of all time. Well, fair enough. So um, okay, well let's let's talk about these minutes seventy to seventy five. As I said, they're going to start with Gettys and Emily leaving Susan's apartment, and uh, we get a uh, there's a moment here where the apartment uh, goes from a live action shot to a newspaper photo and we, we pan out and we see that it's a newspaper 
headline, Candidate Kane Caught in Love Nest with Singer, again in quotes. And of course, this is the Daily Chronicle. It's not the Inquirer. They're not going to be running it. This shot is a reverse uh, of the shot that we saw earlier with Kane and uh, everyone from the Chronicle that he hired over to the Inquirer. Because in that sequence, it was a photo that turned into live action. And here they're reversing it. We're going from live action that turns into a photo. And we see that obviously the Chronicle, uh, supposedly, I guess, a better newspaper, uh, because the Inquirer has been, you know, kind of going into going down the road of sensationalism. They're not above it here because we can see they are giving a lot of column space to this story. And I guess, you know, in 1919-whatever this is supposed to be, um, the 20s, that that Kane, uh, he's running for governor. So having being caught and having an affair is a big deal. But we see that there's like four different stories about it. So obviously the Chronicle is probably taking great glee in dragging their competitor through the mud. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I've uh, as I, I mentioned to you once before, I actually uh, have I've worked on a political campaign and I've uh, actually uh, ran for office a couple times. Wow. Uh, I don't think I think I don't think I ever got more than eight percent of the vote, so uh, that's why it was only twice. <laughs> but but. Um, so I, I do know, uh, certainly from working on, on a campaign, I know a lot, a lot about how uh, the mindset of the people uh, working on the campaigns and uh, sometimes the, the media that are covering the campaigns. And a, a lot of it's just about um, what they think the public wants to hear. Like with any other media, it's do, do they think the public wants to hear about the uh, uh, sexual misdeeds of candidates? Well, they... Maybe they did a hundred years ago, and they, these days, you know, it's it's not so much. I think one of the no. biggest biggest scandals. I had an idea for a story where a politician um, uh, was caught in a sex scandal, and it was it would be, but it turns out the scandal is uh, they were a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting to see what what would happen if that uh, if that got revealed. Uh, <laughs> Candidate, whether what that would do for for him or her. Um, so after the newspaper. Uh, we see Jed, and obviously he's reacting to the headline, and he turns right around and heads into a bar. And again, this is the kind of thing that I've mentioned this in other episodes, and I will again, is that there's even, having seen this movie a couple of dozen times at this point, probably even more than that, there's still things that I didn't get the first two, three, four times that I watched it. And this was one of these things where I never really picked up on the fact that Jed was probably... Uh, is probably an alcoholic and he was uh, on the straight and narrow for the longest time. And then this setback set him back basically, because it's like, it's a very pronounced shot where he is there by himself and he, he presumably drops the newspaper that he's looking. It's a very big close up of Joseph Cotton. And then he turns around and goes through the saloon doors into this bar. And so I got the sense, Oh, this is, this is what set him off drinking again. Of course that will have consequences later on, uh, with his career and with Kane, but I never really picked up that he was. There was there's going to be the scene later on where he gets so drunk he can't finish the review. I didn't necessarily thought, think to mean that that was he was an alcoholic. It was just I thought well that one night he just got out of control. But here I think it's I think they're really trying to establish that you know Jed was didn't have a was trying to control his drinking and then this is what you know he fell off the wagon here. 
Yeah, I never, uh, never really caught that myself. Um, I mean, obviously he he was his drinking was out of control uh, uh, that night, but uh, the night uh, that he um, passed out drunk on the job. But uh, I, I didn't really pick up that he had a, a lifelong a lifelong battle with alcohol addiction. That so I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I, I didn't pick up on it. Yeah, I always just felt like I, I mean, and, and I could be wrong, but I always, as I've seen it more and more and more, kind of like. No, I think they are suggesting that he is just he went a little too far. You know, he he was you know he was okay, and then this, and then he went down this really dark path. So uh, now we go to <laughs> the offices of the Inquirer. Bernstein has got two headlines, and one says Kane elected, which is obviously not going to happen. And then they look at the alternate headline: fraud at polls. And you know, boy howdy, was Orson Welles prescient. Uh, and that we're dealing with this nowadays and that the, to Charles Foster Kane, the only way he could have lost is if the election had been stolen. And, uh, ugh. Yeah. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, as no. Shakespeare said. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, well, Kane, uh, like other billionaires we might know of, uh, has such a massive ego that they can't imagine, uh, themselves losing. And, and, it's also um, that not only can they not imagine them losing, it, it's both any, anyone who runs for office, you know, myself included, to some extent um, wants that adulation or validation from the public, you know, um, and it, it can be uh, disheartening, certainly, when, when you don't get it. Now, in my case, um, I, I started running for office and then there were some uh, setbacks that happened early enough in the campaign that I never seriously entertained the, the notion that I was going to win. You know, I, I thought so when I started, but like, but certainly by the summer before the election, uh, I knew it wasn't going to happen. I just stuck through it you know, just because um, uh, I didn't want to be a quitter. But uh, I, yeah, election night, my election night loss was not a surprise by any means. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. Can I ask what, what uh, offices you were running for? Uh, I ran the first time uh, back in 2004 for uh, my township board of trustees, which is kind of like city council. And then the second time I ran for a county commissioner. Um, and uh, both times, you know, one of the first things uh, I asked about is, you know, well, is anybody else running? I mean, I don't think I may not be the, the greatest. Uh, uh, I'm not claiming to be the greatest politician in the world. My ego isn't that big, but I, <laughs> I think I'm better than nothing. You know, if no one else is running, sure, I'll do it. Um, and then like the second time they said, no, no one's running. We need someone to run. So uh, I filed. And then within six weeks, five other candidates filed. Oh, wow. Oh. And uh, uh, it was so um, I, I ran. Uh, I won't mention which party, but um after I, I jumped in, there was an elected official, a former elected official who jumped in the race. And then there was a the uh, retired president of my own union local uh, also jumped in the race. Hmm. So uh, and when I first started, you know, the, the elected officials and the union people said, oh, yeah, well, we, you know, we, we would uh, support you. We need someone to support. And then, of course, when the other two jumped in on, on my uh, side of the party. Uh, they're like, okay, well, all the elected officials supported the former elected officials, and all the union officials selected the former union officials. So, um, yeah, it was just uh, me running against uh, uh, two people who had more names and more uh, bigger names and more money than I did. So, mm. like I said, okay. well, not a surprise that I lost. Mm. I was going to say, with with 
Kane, the, this scene in, in particular, it's the type of thing that happened doesn't even happen to everyone in life. Some people go through their whole life pretty much knowing where they want to go and they get there. Uh, some people are that fortunate. Some people want to go someplace, but they never seriously think they're going to get there. But when Kane gave the speech uh, just before this scene, when he was giving that speech, he had every notion that he was going to win the election. He and his wife were going to uh, move to the governor's mansion, and then they were probably going to move to the White House uh, yep. shortly thereafter. And within the space of a couple hours, everything has changed. And that was certainly the the, uh, the biggest uh, uh, defeat of his life. And he never could truly accept it because, of course, it wasn't just that uh, he didn't get what he wanted in terms of the election. He also didn't get what he wanted in terms of that validation from the public. Yeah, I mean, he says in the previous uh, five minutes, he talks about when the, when when Gettys tries to tell, tell him he's got to quit, he says, you're not going to deny me the love of uh, of this city of this state the people of the state and you're like boy you you're already going into this for the wrong reasons if you're equating votes with love and of course if you're doing that no wonder you can't accept that you lost because that means these people by your own judgment these people don't love you and that of course to someone of Kane's ego is completely untenable but you have to realize votes are not love and vice versa right right and also, in my case, one of the reasons I haven't run for anything in the last 15 years is because, um, uh, as you can tell from my wonderful creativity, I'm a, um, a government records auditor. So, uh, um, but when it, when it comes right down to it, is would I rather go around talking to strangers, uh, or would I rather sit in front of uh, a computer crunching numbers? And uh, honestly, I would prefer sitting in front of a computer crunching numbers. <laughs> so so I, I don't re- regret not running again. That's just right. one of those things that I'd wanted to do since I was a kid. And I knew I'd regret it more if I never uh, at least crossed that one off my bucket list. But gotcha. I, I, I did it twice. So if, uh, I tried. But w- with Kane, it was such a, a crushing uh, defeat because he, again, he was certain uh, before uh, Getty's uh met him at Susan's apartment that he was going to um, be a smashing success. So it was, uh, uh, had to be a huge blow to his ego. Yeah. I mean, that speech he gives, he's cocky as hell. I mean, he's laughing about it. Boss Jim Gettys and talking about that. He's going to put Jim Gettys in jail again. Wells is incredibly prescient with, uh, with some of the details of, of this film. But so yeah, for, for all it to, for it all to crumble, so quickly it had to just be uh, utterly devastating. So we see Jed talking to a street sweeper. Uh, try as I might, I could not find the credit for this actor. Uh, I, I always try and find the names of everybody who's in this movie, even people who don't have lines. But unfortunately, I was not able to figure out who the street sweeper is. He's got a hell of a job because there's a lot of ticker tape laying out on the streets. And um, so then we uh, were cut to the inside of the uh, Inquirer offices. Bernstein is sending all the loyalists home for the night. And then Kane comes out of his office, obviously realizing that he's been defeated. And I love just the, 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 the sort of subtle change in the costume. First of all, the angle is incredibly low. The camera is down on the floor. And uh, actually Roger Ebert mentioned this in his commentary that they built most of the sets off the floor. Uh, They had to put, they put them up on, on like a, it would be like on a stage like you would see in a theater off of the studio floor 
which of course cost more money than just putting it right on the floor. But they did that so they could put the camera this far down and you could see the ceiling and stuff. And when Kane comes out, he looks disheveled. His tie is very short. I mean, I know that in the 40s, that was kind of the style. But the way Wells is kind of jutting his belly out a little bit, and then you match it with the very short tie, it has a, he has a kind of comical look. It's almost like a W.C. Field sort of thing. I mean, of course, he's, he's been up all night probably, and his, his shirt collar is sort of untucked. So he looks like a mess. And it's just kind of a nice – this is – to this point, even though he, we're seeing older Kane and heavier Kane, he still looked nice in all of his finery and his top hat and all. I mean, you know, he looked pretty well put together, but here he looks like a big mess. And I just kind of like that. That's like, this is Kane laid about as low as he has faced in probably 25, 30 years. Right, right. Um, well, he, uh, ever since he, um, Ever since he gave up Rosebud, he became a, uh, a billionaire, an almost instant billionaire as a child, and he had not known anything but privilege. And then to suddenly have uh, that privilege so, um, uh, well, I don't know what viciously, but uh, suddenly, uh, suddenly uh, yeah. torn from him, uh, it was just such an, an incredible shock to him. Uh, so then Jed comes in, and they have this – very nice conversation, very interesting uh, dialogue between the two of them where Jed is really the only guy that can uh, talk to Charlie. Uh, honestly, Bernstein is, is too, again, too much of a loyalist, too much of a yes man to really have this conversation with Kane, but they talk about it. And, and Jed really gives Kane what for. I mean, he talks about that. Uh, yeah. You wanted to do, you talk about the people you wanted to do things for the people. And he has lying about, you wanted to make a present of Liberty. And the idea that, like, so Cain wants the people in, in the abstract. He wants people, he wants the little man to have rights and have power, but only if Cain can bestow it upon them, which is a little different. But it's, it's a little sinister if you only want people to have a shot if you're the one who is the benefactor of all that. And, and Jed really corners Cain and talks about that. And he even then sort of predicts the future a little bit where he's like, talking about his sort of populist ideas and he says that's going to turn into organized labor and uh, see how you like that and of course someone of Kane's stature and uh, the way that he's been running things he's been doing everything in this very dictatorial uh, manner he's not going to like labor unions he's not going to like that at all uh, and so Jed is really ahead of the game here and he is just totally has his friend's number right right Kane um Basically, when you're raised by a banker, uh, you have such a skewed up uh, sense of, of, of love and compassion that uh, it's, it's no wonder he thought that uh, um, love had to be bought. I mean, that's the only reason why the bankers would throw him birthday parties as a child uh, was because of the money. So that's, you know, uh, that that's what the character of Cain, uh, it's all he knew. It's all he w was raised. I mean, that ever since he left his parents, that was it. And um, you know, if he wants the love of the people, he has to give the people things. You know, he'll fight for the little man because uh, to him, everyone else is a little man. You know, you're either <laughs> right, a little man, right. you're either your little man, or you're one of his employees, or or, or you're a crook. You know, uh, there there <laughs> really isn't a lot of middle ground there. <laughs> um, there's this great reverse shot where we see all of Jed again, and the the, the camera is down on the floor. Later on, um, they will have uh, they will talk about. Um, the, the phrase dramatic criticism will come up. 
And again, according to the Orson Welles commentary, uh, excuse me, the Roger Ebert commentary, uh, Cotton had been up all night the night before. I guess they were up very late shooting and he was very tired. And instead of saying dramatic criticism, he says dramatic crimatism. And then he corrects himself. And you see uh, Orson Welles laugh. You see Charlie laugh at that. And it's apparently it's a mistake. It was Cotton was just really tired and made a mistake. And they decided to just leave it in because obviously Jed is supposed to be drunk. So it makes sense that he's slurring his words a little bit. But it's, of course, because it is a real moment, it has this incredibly wonderful, natural feel to it. And it, it's kind of the kind of thing you talked about at the beginning where this doesn't feel like a very uh, stiff, poised, quote-unquote, prestige picture. Because it has moments like this where you get to see these two actors kind of laugh at one another because they know in the moment that Joseph Cotton has made a mistake, but they're just going to roll with it because that's something that would happen in real life. Yeah, that's one of the the fascinating uh, things about uh, film, making a film, is sometimes some of the the best moments uh, are those that weren't planned. They just happen to happen, and they happen to be caught on camera. So uh, it's it's one I always find that fascinating when you're like, oh well, you know, he was he didn't intend to drop it, but he did, and so we just said, hey, it looks good, we leave it in. Yeah. Uh, from what I understand of the, you know, every time I've ever heard about, uh, you know, again, an audio commentary or a book of making of where they say, if you're shooting a movie, don't ever stop. Even if you make a mistake, don't stop until the director tells you to stop. You just keep going. And, uh, you know, I they realize because obviously maybe the director decides to, to leave it in. And so, uh, again, you can sort of see, I love that when Cotton makes the mistake, he kind of like, jerks his head a little like ah like that and you almost think he could see you know uh joseph cotton maybe in that moment wondering all right let's start over and then the fact that wells just continues on with the line and he has the little chuckle and continues on with the line uh and and you know cotton of course being a you know a wonderful actor just goes with it and it's probably you know i don't take out the probably it's it's the last kind of nice moment these two are gonna have together because after this uh, their friendship is going to get ruined when when Jed writes the review. But it's it, it's a shame because I really enjoy watching Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton together. They, of course, did The Third Man together. And Welles, of course, directed Joseph Cotton and, and The Magnificent Ambersons. They had a you know a great friendship. But here, it's really fun to watch these two guys kind of go toe-to-toe because, as, as we were saying, Jed's the only person in Kane's life that can really talk honestly to him. And after this part of, of Kane's life is over, he's not going to have this again. So they're going to share the five minutes are going to end with them sharing one last drink. And that's pretty much going to be it. And it's it, every guest has been saying this as we go on, like their five minutes is the crux of it. Every their five minutes is where the film really turns. And I won't, I won't go maybe that far here, but nevertheless, this is the last guy that Kane can really call friend and it's going to be over. And it's, it's sad. It is. It is. You know, um, um, like I said, one of the, I, one of the things I observed from my very first viewing before I read any uh, articles or uh, listened to any commentaries is I could tell it was about his quest for for a love, and you could see that. Uh, I mean, a, a, a great friendship is hard to find, and he would never have one again. Yeah, it's uh, Jed's out of his life, and again, Cotton, marvelous performer and again he'll be uh, he'll be in the movie throughout 
but it's it's fun watching someone of um, Orson Welles's. I quite, Joseph Cotton didn't have the star magnitude that Welles had, uh, but he was you know, a fantastic actor, and he could share the stage, share the screen with Orson Welles, even even with all of Orson's energy and sort of the big personality but he was able to kind of almost underplay it a little bit. And uh, again, it's, they're just really fun to watch. And so uh, this is going to kind of be it for, for, for Charlie, you know, in a lot of ways. So that's going to wrap up the five minutes of, uh, of this section of citizen Kane. So before we finish up, is there anything else we want to say about the movie before we're done? Uh, not, not about the, uh, the movie per se. Um, I don't, one question you had asked uh, some previous guests, but uh, I don't recall you specifically. I don't know if you were planning on asking this, but, Aside from Citizen Kane, him, or uh, the movie itself, uh, I one of some of my first memories of Orson Welles were, uh, of course, the the uh, the wine commercials, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, some of the, a lot of the narration he had done, and uh, one thing I I don't think anyone's mentioned yet is his appearances on the Dean Martin celebrity roast. Yes, <laughs> he's very funny on that. And not only was he funny, but just the the bizarre juxtaposition on the, on the day. Sometimes the, the same episodes would have like Orson Welles and Dean Martin, of course, but um, like Jimmy Walker, JJ Dynamite, <laughs> Bruce uh, Buzzy. <laughs> yeah, I mean those that pairing. I mean, come on, that's it's a, just it's so bizarre looking back that you could have those two uh, sharing the stage together. Uh, <laughs> I later read that they probably didn't share the stage together that um, for the Dean Martin celebrity roast, unless you saw people in the same shot at the same time, they probably weren't in the studio at the same time. Jeez. But, uh, you know, that that's one of the ways okay, they, they could make it so efficiently is they just said, okay, well, come in when you can and we'll, uh, uh, you know, you will, we'll do your five minutes or however long your bit is. And then uh, we'll uh, edit it in. We'll make it look like you're entering the stage with the same time as everyone else. And wow. I didn't know that. That's a, Oh man, that had to be a pain to put those together. I mean, good Lord. Uh, easier for the actors, uh, harder for the editors. Yeah. I mean, the poor editors have to sit there and literally go through miles of film to pull out. All right, here's where Rickles enters. Okay. Here, let's put this in. And then uh, Ruth Buzzy will come out and then uh, Billy Crystal will do his Muhammad Ali impression or whatever. But yeah, one of the things I will say about those Dean Martin roasts, because I have seen a bunch of them, is it is, you mentioned that you use the word juxtaposition. And it really is amazing to see because some of the stars that are there are the young, like the young stars on their way up. And then, you know, they're around now and they're still some of them relatively current. And then you see them mixing with people who feel like they're from another era. So like I joke, Billy Crystal, Billy Crystal was on a bunch of them because he was right. an up and coming stand-up comedian in the late seventies. He was on soap and you know, he's still around. He's not really in very much nowadays, but he is still around. And it's, it's just weird to see Orson, Orson Welles rubbing shoulders with Billy Crystal. You know, it just feels like, wow, that's like, you know, or like Jimmy Stewart, you know, who <laughs> talking yeah. to, you know, you're like, wow, really? Like that's, or, you know, like, it just it's just sort of amazing that this was like old Hollywood was spilling over into new Hollywood right at that moment. And I guess they were trying to, you know, get some youthful viewers. And so, oh, let's book Freddie Prinze. You know, let's book Richard Pryor on one of these things. Uh, meanwhile, we're also going to have John Wayne come out or Ronald Reagan. You know, I mean, it's oh, right, right. Yeah. And it, even even the people of the same generation, you know, such a juxtaposition. I mean, when you um, like on the roast they did for Bob Hope, I mean, you you had 
uh, Barry Goldwater and Billy Graham. And uh, it was just some of the people that they would bring out there. It was crazy. Yeah, you know, I, I rewatched several of them uh, within the last uh, few years. And I, I would say probably a third of the jokes are, you know, they just fall flat. Um, you know, either they're not funny because of poor taste or, or they're, I've heard them a thousand times. Then in, and there was like another third that like, okay, I probably would have laughed at this the first time I saw it, but mm-hmm. it, you know, now it's just not funny. But a, a third of the, the jokes were still genuinely funny, you know, 40 years later. I got to give credit to the funniest joke I ever heard at one of those, uh, one of those Dean Martin roasts back when, uh, uh, we had them at the video store that I worked at. We would, so I would take them home occasionally. I got to give credit. The best joke was by Ronald Reagan before he was president. He was governor of California at the time. And they were roasting Bob Hope. And his line was, uh, Bob Hope has entertained five presidents. He's performed for nine. And I just <laughs> thought, I'm like, good joke. <laughs> good, you know, genuine, regardless of what I feel about Ronald Reagan as a political figure, that's a good joke, well delivered. By Ronald yeah. Reagan. So I was like, okay, yeah, good joke. But but Wells was on this a lot, and he really seemed to be having a, a good time. Uh, you know, he was big. You know, of course, he was huge by then. And so he, he cut this, you know, massive figure and had a cigar and, the, you know, the big black tux and stuff. And, you know, it was always fun to see him there just kind of being being Orson Welles professionally. You know, just sort right. of like, I'm just I'm just here to be Orson Welles and with my deep booming voice and all that kind of stuff. So just, those are those are fun to watch. And if you're a Wells fan, you can check them out. Like I said, they're available. You can check them out on YouTube because well, they are they are fun. So, um, so well, Ted, uh, thank you so much for coming by. I really do appreciate it. And talking Citizen came with me. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Oh sure, um, I have a Facebook account under my name. Uh, I have a Twitter account under my name. I have another Twitter account under the uh, Justice Trek uh, label. That's uh, Justice Trek No Space, and that's where I uh, do a lot of my comic book stuff. And um, because I, I work for the government, uh, I don't put any political stuff on on Facebook. I save that for Twitter. So if you, <laughs> so you want to hear what I think about the, uh, my president or my governor, whoever they are at the time, uh, yeah, check check me out on Twitter, not on Facebook. Um, <laughs> Facebook, I just uh, uh, share uh, uh, stupid jokes with people. Photos um, of pickle juice. Pickle milk. Pickle milk, yes. Photos of pickle milk is the most horrible thing ever. So, uh, well, that's great, Dead. Thank you so much for stopping by. I really do appreciate it. Um, of course, everybody, if you want to follow this show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Citizen Kane Minute on any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking Citizen Kane on Twitter, at CKane Minute. And finally, if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash podcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Slick. Uh, for their support of Citizen Kane Minute. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for more Citizen Kane Minute. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself.